Welcome back. It's episode 55 of The Build. We're in our Michael Pozzetta period. Our Sergei Gonchar moment. Our Francis Bouillon era. Of course, Bouillon is most remembered in his 51 sweater. But he did play 100 games in the number 55, as his standard 51 was occupied by David D'Arnais. We had just switched from 51 to 51 from 58. When Bouillon was brought back, and if I remember correctly, they had a conversation about changing, and, B- and Dayarnay essentially said no. So, 581 games for Francis Bouillon in Montreal, and that's honestly way more than I thought he played in Montreal, but I guess it does make sense. Uh, 117 points in those games. And he's still with the team. He's in the development uh, department. So, pretty cool to have him around still. Uh, Travis Moen for Sergey Gonchar is one of the funniest one-for-ones in recent memory. Just getting a Hall of Fame-adjacent player in Gonchar. I know he's more of like a, one of those lifetime achievement kind of players because he was a compiler. He, you know, his stats don't jump off the page on like a point-per-season metric, but he just played for so long. But to get Moen for him is hilarious, even though Gonchar was 40. Um, I know this isn't about Moen, but since we're on the topic, I, I didn't remember that Moen spent parts of six seasons in Montreal. That doesn't seem like a six year kind of player. I do not remember that era being as long as it was. I remember like in those playoff runs that the playoff run (laughs) that that 2010 team went on that like Travis Moen was playing with like, (laughs) with like Scott Gomez and Brian Gianta late in games to like shut the game down and th- which I find funny because like that wasn't what shut the game down it was Yaro Halak playing out of his mind but Travis Moen was his his longest stop in the NHL was in Montreal 328 games in a Canadian's jersey 69 very nice points for him I just couldn't believe that he was here that long I do not remember that and of course, our sweet Michael Pizzetta, forever a legend after uh, a shootout in Buffalo where he scored and then rode it on his stick as if he was Tiger Williams. Still very cool. Very, very much uh, appreciate the man, the myth, the legend, uh, Michael Pizzetta. All right, we'll jump into things here. Um, we're going in chronological order, which means, like many seasons, we will start in Toronto. Um, October is the Super Bowl for people who love to complain about opening ceremonies at hockey games. I, I've never understood, like, it seems like this, this chest beating thing that fans do, like, ours was better. No, ours is better. And I can, like, none of it matters. Um, and, you know, the leaf ceremony wasn't anything bad. It, it just, it didn't do much other than just introduce hockey players, which is the point of it, if we're being honest. They were very literal with their opening ceremony the big sticking point to me is how that building always sounds like a morgue like ryan reeves for as much as i'll talk about him later and i'm not a big fan he skated out there and pointed to his flex bicep and you would have thought that the fans were having dental work done like they could not be bothered to care at all about these players being introduced and i say the word fan when I'm talking about the people who are at these games, but really that's not fair because these games are in Toronto, from what I've heard from some people, is that it's mostly just rich dudes in suits who fill the lower bowl and really don't care. You know, they're, they're there, as, it's a status thing. Like, oh, I have tickets to the Leaf home opener. It's not a fair indictment on Leaf fans who are among the loudest in the league. We all know that. Like, you've seen shots of the, the people who are outside of the building during the playoff games, just losing their minds at every goal. So the tickets are too expensive, and they don't go to people who actually want to be there to make noise and cheer on the team, which is a shame. It's really silly that a team with you know as much of a pedigree as the Toronto Maple Leafs has that problem. Like even in Montreal, those tickets are expensive. It's still louder. Like well, I don't know what the difference is, but it's it, it there is one. Anyway, that's not what this show is about. What this show is about is Jake Evans skating past a fallen TJ Brody and scoring on a breakaway for the Canadiens' first goal of the season. Um, Evans often gets forgotten about on this roster. Um, he's not 
you know, he's not the most attractive option at forward, but he's certainly like one of the more dependable Canadian forwards the Canadians have had over the last few years. He's as solid a fourth liner as you'll find. He could probably play third line minutes. Like we just haven't really had the need for him to do so. Um, it was a cool seeing him get the ball rolling for the Canadians. Um, still in that first period, we got our first fireworks of the season. Um, Caden Gooley's controlling the puck behind the net. Ryan Rees lines him up for a hit. Gooley turns a little bit, but I, it's not a, it wasn't like everyone, people were making it out to be like, oh, he turned and like he turned a full 90 degrees to put his back to Reeves. It wasn't that aggressive. Reeves was going to finish his check no matter what. But he gets Gooley right in the numbers. Gooley goes into the boards. Um, there was no penalty, which I thought was silly, because even on pl- plays where the player turns, they still call the penalty a lot of the time. Um, and because there's no penalty, Jacki drops the gloves and grabs Ryan Reeves. Uh, Reeves drops his gloves and tries to throw the first punch. They swing for a few seconds. Jacki got the better of him physically by pushing him backwards. They hit the back of the net. You know, whatever. Uh, when the dust settled, both get five for fighting, but Jacki earns an extra minor and a 10-minute misconduct for instigating. In recent memory, this is one of the more mystifying instigator calls I've ever seen. And for a few reasons. First, Brian Reeves was very obviously a willing combatant in this fight. Jacki did not need to coerce him into fighting. I feel fairly certain that Reeves knew Jacki was on the ice and he finished a hit to a vulnerable on a vulnerable player in order to draw Jacki into that fight. We talk about Ryan Reeves as like this expert fighter, but then like in a situation like this, they make it seem like he has no idea what's going on. They, he can't be both an expert at this and aloof at the same time. He knew what he was getting into. Since Reeves got to Toronto, he's been talking about fights like this one. He's been talking about taking fights like this one. This idea that Reeves was unwilling is laughable. And second, like the, instigator, the instigator rule was not put in place to protect guys like Reeves or Jacki. And I know that sounds like, oh, well, it's, it's two leagues, one for the superstars and one for the, 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 the rest of the league. Yeah, we can pretend that's not the case, but the reality that we live in is that this rule was put in place to protect Sidney Crosby against Darian Hatcher from chasing him around the ice all night and whacking him. It was not put in place to stop Ryan Reeves from having to answer for a questionable hit. It was put in place to protect other players from Ryan Reeves and Arbor Jacki. It seemed to me to be a very odd interpretation of that rule. And it, it seemed like the referees were using that as an example to try to not let that game get out of hand. And another reason that I find the uh, the instigator in this case very silly is that Reeves threw the first punch. Reeves, you know, a, a day later or whatever, went, went in front of the media and was like, I don't like being jumped. I got jumped by Jacki. But the replay shows an entirely different story. Arbor absolutely gets his gloves off first. You will not have me argue anything to the, to the, the opposite. But he doesn't just start throwing haymakers when Reeves isn't, isn't ready. He grabs him, and then Reeves drops his gloves and tries to throw a punch. And good on Jacki, because he was asked about Reeves' comments about him being jumped or whatever. He not so subtly called Reeves out on it. Essentially saying that, like, Reeves likes those fights at center ice where they square up and they spin around each other for five seconds before someone grabs the other. It, Reeves likes these fake fights. He doesn't like these real ones that take place in the heat of the moment. He likes, he likes being able to size a guy up for a week ahead of the, the, the fight happening. He takes fake fights because he's fake tough. At the end of the, uh, after he played, um, after the Leafs played Chicago earlier this week, he, he was talking about how Corey Perry runs his mouth and, then, and, and he has no respect for him. But, Brian, but to Ryan Reeves, going in front of the, the media and complaining about two players already in the season that we are still in, in, Octo- we are still in October, that's, that's totally fine. It's totally tough for him to do that. This idea that Ryan Reeves was brought into Toronto 
to protect star players is hilarious. Because in the in the instances that he's fought in this season, who is he protecting? In this game, he was the aggressor in the hit on Ghoulie. He found a player in an in an uh, a vulnerable position and he and he put him into the boards. And in the game against Minnesota, the Leafs game against Minnesota, he was the aggressor. He was he made a clean, very clean, but a massive hit on Freddie Goudreau that resulted in Marcus Felino fighting him. So what are we doing here? I I I think it's I'm I'm very much not looking forward to Reeves playing in Toronto, not because oh I'm afraid of of what he does on the ice. What he does on the ice is he plays seven minutes. Like he's not he's not an he's not an effective hockey player. I'm ups- I I'm I'm upset. I'm not upset. I am. Don't put in the paper that I'm mad. <laughs> I I don't like the idea that for the next three years. Everything this seven minute a night player says is going to be headline news and that everybody in in major media in this sport falls over themselves to talk, to present the things that he says as if they're fact. I don't think he's very tough. I think he's fake tough. I think he's, I think he's skate out on the home, the, the home opener and point to my bicep tough, like just cartoonish loser stuff. So good on Jackye for not only answering the bell and I think getting the better of Ryan Reeves, but to then, you know, subtly call him on it in the media when he was asked about it. Um, I wrote this before all of the Chicago stuff happened, but I'm glad I really don't have to think about Ryan Reeves again until March. And because that's when Montreal and Toronto play next, who knows? By then, I don't even think he'll be an NHL regular. You've got to think that the the... The, the Leafs are going to make ads to, to bolster a playoff roster. Why would they play Ryan Reeves in a game in March against Montreal? That makes no sense. So anyway, the first period went about as well as it could have for the Canadians. The second period was pretty bad. Uh, Montreal scored again to open the period. Newhook gets his first on a nice play from Doc and Slavkovsky. Uh, Caulfield scores on a power play to give the Canadians a 3-0 lead, but it gets called back on a very close offside review. Um, to which I have a few thoughts. One, I hate the offside review. I, I don't like goals being taken away um, on entirely inconsequential plays where a millimeter is deciding whether or not it's offside or not. But it, it just seems like teams use it as a get-out-of-jail-free card. And, I, you know, I say this now, and I will say this when the Canadians are supposed to be playing well and they get goals saved from this offside challenge it is not the intent of this rule and that and you know it was supposed to take back the egregious ones like the matt duchene one that sparked all of this where he was offside by like five feet and no one called it it's not meant for plays like this but i understand that it is there's no like i'm not saying oh that that goal needs to count it doesn't count it's annoying that it doesn't because of the, the circumstances of that play but also on that play i think a symptom of the Canadians' poor play caused that to go offside. They were on a power play. The power play re-entry is bad. They only do the one play where it's the neutral zone drop pass where one player skates in front of Nick Suzuki and the other three are lined up on the blue line. And as they skate over center, they drop the puck back to Suzuki, supposedly to create space for Suzuki to go in. But then all four of the Canadians' other players are lined up on that blue line. And when you've got four players sitting stationary on a blue line trying to time the, the puck carrier going over the line, I feel, like, I feel like they are far more likely to go offside than doing anything else. And that's what we saw in that play. Like, there was just a lot going on on the blue line. There's two, like, in the, I remember on the broadcast, they were focused, I think it was on Monaghan at the time, but it wasn't Monaghan who was offside. It was Caulfield, I think, lower. Because there were four guys there, any one of them could have been offside. So I think that like that's a part of the Canadian strategy that may lend itself to having some goals taken away. So the Leafs used that as a moment to collect themselves. They would have been down 3 nothing, and a lot of people would have thought the game would have been over. Um, but instead, they go, to, they go only to 2 nothing. The Canadians go back on the power play to complete that power play. They don't score. Um, and we move on. Noah Gregor scores for the Leafs on a shot that I know a lot of people gave 
Jake Allen grief for? And you should. It wasn't a good shot. Like, he needs to stop that from a player who has no business scoring that kind of goal. But one thing that I saw a lot of in the first couple games, and I think folks should look at, is how much time and space David Savard is giving guys on the rush. His gap control is brutal. On that goal, he gives Gregor way too much space to make a play. It's the NHL, like even these guys that like are bottom of the lineup guys, if you give a lot of them, especially the ones on really talented teams, if you give them any kind of space, they're going to make you pay for it. And Savard has been punished for it constantly throughout the start of this season. Like on that Gregor play, I think as Gregor's coming over the blue line, Savard is taking like steps backwards and to the left, like towards the middle of the ice, I guess to like force him to the outside. but. When you're moving back at the same time, you're not forcing him to the inside. You're giving him a lane to the net. So I haven't, I have not liked David Savard's game to start this year. I thought last year people were maybe a little too tough on him, myself included. But th- this has not been a good start to the season for him. Um, and Montreal goes into the third period trailing. Um, I thought this would be a good chance at this point to see the resolve of this, this team. How do they react to getting punched in the mouth? in a situation where they thought everything was going their way. And to their credit, they were pretty great. Montreal tied it early in the third. Um, Newhook scored again on a deflection to take the lead. Uh, yes, Ulanen scored a really, really cool goal to pad the lead. I didn't know he had that in him. I want to see more of it. Um, and Montreal was sitting pretty. They had a two-goal a two lead. Um, but like last year, and like we are already seeing this year, is that the penalties are a problem. And... I don't know that the penalty kill has been particularly bad to start this year, but when you're playing against the team that had the number two power play last year in Toronto, you can't really afford to take as many penalties as the Canadians did. Matthews completes his hat trick to tie the game late. Uh, Just one goal uh, at five on five for the Leafs on the night. The last two came um, in a six on five or four situation. At least one of them was six on five. The other might have been six on four. Um, The special teams let them down in this one because they they could not match the kind of play that the Toronto Maple Leafs are able to do on the power play. And that wasn't just restrained to regulation. Montreal had a four-on-three power play in overtime, much like they did early last year against Pittsburgh, and it looked just as bad, if not worse. And for this one, I give them a little bit of a break because we know that Montreal doesn't practice the five-on-four power play that often. There's no chance they've throughout camp that they've practiced four on three once. So that was kind of to be expected when you don't have a lineup with a game breaker or two who can just take over a situation like that. If you're not practicing it, you're not going to succeed. I couldn't even tell you what happened in the shootout. I have already forgotten because they do not matter. Um, But Montreal gets a point in a game where they might have deserved both. Um, But that's not how this works. Um, so general thoughts throughout game one, um, I thought it was nice to see it was, you know, I don't think we learned much about the Toronto Maple Leafs in that game. The power play is good. It was good last year. Defense and goaltending are shaky. They were last year. Matthews is really good. We knew that. There's not really much I learned about Toronto in that game. For the Canadians, there were a few things I learned. The second line looked really, really good. And that the, you know, the preseason was not a mirage in that department. Of course, we already know what happens to that line coming up, but it was something worth noting coming out of game one. Uh, Jake Allen let in some goals he might want back, but more concerning to me was his puck handling. Every time he went behind the net to play the puck, his teammates seemed to have no idea what he was going to do with it. It was an adventure almost every time he played the puck, and he likes to do that a lot. So something to to watch. We've only seen the one start from him so far. Montembeau got the other two. So something to monitor moving forward. Uh, Cole Caulfield is getting 40 this year. I I just, I look at this player and I think he's on a mission to do it. Um, He's been excellent through the first three games. I think, other than the Minnesota game, but we'll get to that. Um, I think he does it. If he stays healthy, I think he hits it. Uh, The second pairing, Gouli and Kovacevic, I thought were fantastic. Um, Gallagher looks like he's playing in slow-mo and that really sucks to see. Um, this team, this, this team would be a lot of fun if they stayed healthy, which we already know they are not. So why don't we just go ahead and get into that in game two against Chicago, 
Uh, Kirby Doc left with a lower body injury and did not return. Uh, he got hit into the board, into like the bench area, but it didn't look like that might have been what caused it. It might have been a hit that took place earlier. It was tough to tell. The big, the big play that everybody keeps pointing to is, is you know, uh, Jared Tenorti putting him on top of the dasher board in front of the bench. Um, I'll get into what this means for the Canadians as a whole at the end of talking about this game. But for now, the Canadians essentially needed to play, you know, 55 minutes shorthanded. Um, and that matters to the understanding of this game because it was really tough to find any rhythm offensively. The first power play unit looked good, and then it was decidedly not good the rest of the game. With Doc out, instead of sliding Newhook to center and bringing up like Raphael Harvey Pinard, Marty decided to double shift the centers, mostly just Monaghan and Suzuki. Monaghan handled it well. I thought, you know, he was getting a lot of the lower matchups during his regular shifts. But Suzuki really struggled to generate offense when tasked with the shutdown role. Um, that's something I think we'll continue to see without a designated shutdown center. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that as we move forward. Uh, in the second period, with all the centers jumbled, Monaghan had a shift with Caulfield and Anderson. Anderson made a good pass in the offensive zone to Cole Caulfield. And Cole makes a really good, uh, he toe drags past uh, Kevin Korczynski, goes to his backhand, takes a shot, bats in the rebound out of midair. Uh, that's goal two for Cole. Um, I, man, he's scoring 40, man. I, I just, even with how bad this team might be, like, I just think he's going to, he's going to have enough runway to do it. And on this play, Anderson makes a really good pass. I give Anderson a lot of grief for his lack of desire to be a playmaker. So this was a really, really nice play to see. Passed it. He drew in a, uh, he drew a defender towards him and then passed the puck through that guy to get to Cole, who was pretty much wide open on the left wing. He had to go through Korchinski, but in a one-on-one, I'll take Caulfield in that matchup. Uh, Tanner Pearson scored his first on a really, really good shot. He has two goals on this season. The next one came in the wild game. Both of them absolute rockets of wrist shots off the rush. Um, Raphael Harvey-Pinard continued to prove that he shouldn't be in the bottom six. He sets up Monaghan's shorthanded goal. Um, the Canadians' parade to the penalty box continued. Savard continued to struggle, but even with all of that, the Canadians still found a way to to get their first win of the season in a game they probably deserved to win. But of course, after that, the good vibes were immediately shot. I think before the second period started, we knew Doc wasn't coming back. At that point, I kind of knew that it was it was it was very serious. Like. After the game, they said he'd be reevaluated the following day with regards to his knee injury. My thought at the time was that it was an MCL injury because when he was leaving the ice, he stopped and he pointed to the outside of his right knee. Typically, I watch a lot of football like that. That typically means that's where the injury is. I'm not a doctor, of course, but. You know, it, it, it seemed to me that they were trying to they were they were just getting more tests because their original tests were very, very uh, bad. Like they they looked at the results and they said this is bad. We should probably get further confirmation before we announce anything. Uh, further testing revealed that not only was his MCL torn but his ACL as well. He will have surgery to repair it, and his season is over. Um, after a game where you know yes Doc was injured, but the Canadians had not lost a game in regulation yet, <laughs> and still. Understandably, the wind was taken out of this team immediately. Like, this is an obvious bummer for, you know, a lot of reasons. First and foremost, for Doc, it just seems like his career has been injury after injury. It's a minor miracle that it still feels like he's going to develop into a serious top six forward. Like, think about all the time he's missed that the World Junior inju injury all of last season, and now he's going to miss all of this season, and yet I still have no doubts that he's going to become that player that we all think he is. It's a testament to him as a player and, and him as a person who continues to put in that hard work to overcome these things. And since the question is going around, I'll preemptively answer this. No, I do not think Doc's injuries are a red flag. 
I do not consider him to be injury prone because it is not the same injury over and over again. Like if it was, it, you know, like we talk about we talk about Brendan Gallagher and his broken hands, and how now his hands can't really do much because they they've been broken a whole bunch. That's the kind of injury I'd be concerned with. I'm not necessarily that much so worried about Doc as far as like his ability to play in the NHL. And a point that Andrew Berkshire made on Game Over was that you know Doc. Thankfully, in this instance, it seems kind of weird to say, but he's not like a Connor McDavid type skater. That's not part of his game. He's a he's a great skater, but his like it's not the speed that that gets you with Doc. It's his power from 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 those areas. Um, so I feel pretty confident that he'll rehab this well and be back next season. Um, there was also this idea that like since Doc hasn't scored much in his time in the NHL that this isn't a massive loss for the Canadians. I know Grant McCagg had said that, and I feel even dumb bringing him up on this show. But, like, I mean, you'd expect nothing less from a guy who pretends to be a scout judging a player just by looking at his points. Like, that couldn't be further from the truth for what Doc's value is to the Canadians. It's not his points. He gives the Canadians two centers to roll out against top competition. It, it frees up Suzuki and Caulfield to do more damage. It sets up Suzuki, our, our new hook, and Slavkovsky to play a more strong offensive game. Now, without Kirby Doc, Nick Suzuki is going to have to face the other team's top competition every night, just like he did a lot of last year and the year before. Every shift for, the Suzuki, in, for, for Suzuki after the Doc injury has been an uphill battle because he. he he doesn't get a break from facing the other team's top con- uh, competition. And I know p- people are, are, you know, kind of soured on Suzuki because of the way that he's opened this season. But taking that into account, that two of the three games were played without Kirby Doc behind him. We'll get into the Minnesota game in a little bit, but I'll use that one as an example. The Capri's offline for Minnesota is their most dangerous. It was largely ineffective at 5-on-5. They controlled just 26% of the expected goals when they were on the ice. So this idea that Nick Suzuki is is a bum all of a sudden is is created out of nowhere. It's just people looking at points, goals and assists, and that's all that matters. Like that game, the Canadians, and we'll talk about it later, but the Canadians... They got beat by special teams again. Five on five, they did not get beat. Nick Suzuki can't, can't, do, can't play all of the five on five minutes, all of the penalty kill minutes, and all of the power play minutes. He doesn't even make eight million bucks a year. Like we, the expectation that he should be doing that sort of that sort of heavy lifting is insane to me. So that leaves Marty Marty St. Louis with another decision to make. If Suzuki has to be the shutdown guy, does it make sense to move Cole Caulfield to another line so he can do what he does best? You know, until we get Dvorak back, it doesn't, I just don't see a chance for Nick Suzuki to score a ton while he's playing against the other team's best players. Because, you know, it's not just Nick Suzuki out there. It's... David Savard. You know, like it's a defense behind him that while I, I think is greatly improved just, you know, in, in getting another year older. They're still not good. Like the rest of this roster still is not very good. It's not it's not all that different from last season. So without Doc, to me, like a lot of the lines just don't make a ton of sense, especially as Marty constructed them going into the game against Minnesota. Yeah, you can move Newhook to center with Slavkovsky, but who goes on that line? Against the Wild, it was Tanner Pearson. Yeah, he scored in that game, but I don't think that can be the right fit, right? Like, I don't think Tanner Pearson should be playing in this team's top six. And I don't think it should be Josh Anderson. I don't think he fits that role. So, like, one idea, maybe you move Caulfield down with Newhook and Slavkovsky, and you put Anderson with Suzuki and... And Raphael Harvey-Pernard. 
at least until Dvorak comes back and you see what you have there. It's not perfect, but breaking up Suzuki and Caulfield gives opposing teams a choice. You only have one top defensive pair. Who do you want to play them against? Do you want to play him against Nick Suzuki and leave Cole Caulfield to score goals? Do you want to match that Cole Caulfield line? And now Nick Suzuki can play with a guy in Raphael harvey Pernard who was lighting the, the league on fire last year. And Josh Anderson, who, you know, might not score a ton, but he's a, a handful to deal with. Like I've said, I think things become easier after Dvorak returns, just from a matchup standpoint. Because they probably roll him out on the third line, and that will give them the luxury of taking a Sean Monaghan and moving him up the lineup, whether that's to play second line center between Newhook and uh, Slavkovsky, or um, to keep Newhook at center and put him on the top line with, and put Monaghan on the top line with Suzuki. So there are options coming, it's just not readily apparent. So to bring this back to what I was talking about, what seems like 20 minutes ago, the reality here is far more challenging than just replacing Doc's goals and assists. To even suggest that is entirely devoid of any understanding of the dynamic of this hockey team. And I've been thinking a lot about the impact of this and trying to put it into the scope of the rebuild and this show as a whole. Like, does the Doc injury is terrible. Does it derail the rebuild in any meaningful way? Honestly, probably not. As much as having Doc here and playing is obviously best for him, his development, for you know the team's results, they probably pick up a few more points in the standings with him around. I don't think this is going to be a massive blow to his development. He was showing signs of breaking out. I, I forgot that he's only 22. He doesn't turn 23 until January. So we're going to see him again when he's 23. In terms of the question I like to ask with regards to this show, are the Canadians any further away from the Stanley Cup with Doc missing the rest of this year and presumably healthy moving forward? And I think the answer to that is no, because to answer yes would to say that they were, they were going to make a market, marked improvement this season if Doc had stayed healthy, which I just don't think was the case. Even with a healthy Kirby Doc, I thought we were looking at another bottom five finish. You know, we talked about the, the point totals from Vegas at the beginning of the season. There are only two teams with a lower point total than the Montreal Canadiens. And that was taking into account that Kirby Doc was going to be here all year. It sucks he's not here. I wish he was healthy. I'm glad that it seems like he's sticking around the team. It's good for morale. And I wish he was playing because selfishly the remaining 79 games are going to be less fun without him there. But perspective here is important. He's going to come back. They weren't going to be world beaters this year. It's a bummer in a long line of Habs bummers over the last few seasons. But in keeping focus with what the goals are this season, Montreal's finish this season is not changed by leaps and bounds. How they get to the end is obviously a lot harder to figure out. But unlike what, what McCagg had, had you know, insinuated, Doc is not going to be easy to replace from a roster-building perspective. Anyone who has watched Christian Dvorak over the last few seasons knows that he is not Kirby Doc. So it's a bummer. I'm bummed for the player. I'm bummed for the team. I'm bummed for all of us. But it... It doesn't change the look of how this team rebuilds. It doesn't change the way I think about this rebuild in any meaningful way. He'll be back next year, hopefully on an even better Canadians roster. Um, and we'll just have to wait. It sucks. All right, one more game to talk about, if you want to call it that, and then we'll hit the mailbag. Um, this one won't take long because it was very bad. Marty St. Louis said after game two that he one of the things he liked the most about the Canadians uh, this, to start the season was their starts in games. And the Canadians said, bet, and had the worst start of the season by far. <laughs> they couldn't do anything with or without the puck when given the game's first power play. They allowed the Wild to score two shorthanded goals. 
In the first period, not a single player stood out to me in a positive way. But there were still two pieces of good news to come out of the first. One, it could have easily been 6 nothing after the first, and it was only two, so they were still in this game. And two, the bottom six was doing all the damage for Minnesota. The top lines were mostly quiet and remained that way at 5-on-5 five five throughout the game. Montreal could get back in this game if they played smart. But they didn't do that. Instead, they took more bad penalties and effectively took themselves out of the game before the refs completely lost control of the game um, in the third period. Caden Gooley was injured in the second period and did not return. At the time of this recording, I believe the Canadians have said he's day-to-day because what does that even mean? Um, and Montreal drops this one 5-2 to two and are an even 1-1-1 one, one, and one on the season. Let's talk about the Gooley injury. Since we don't know much about the severity of the Gooley injury, it's tough to say how this impacts the Canadians' lineup over the next few days. I've really liked the Guli kovacevic pairing. They had a really tough game against Minnesota before Guli left, but the sample sizes statistically are kind of difficult to go off of when you're trying to paint a big picture. You can look at each individual game and say, in this game, this player did this. But like saying, oh, so far this season, he's been bad. So far this season has been a week. So I don't know that there's anything to be um, gained from making those kinds of connections. If you're Justin Barron, this is your opportunity now, right? It, it has to be. And if you're Jordan Harris, there's a new opportunity for you. We saw a Barron Jacki pairing in the first preseason game. Um, and I think we might be headed back to that because Barron being a right shot helps balance things out. Harris can move up to the second pair and play his natural side next to Kovacevic. Both of these guys are going to get a, an, an increased opportunity here to show what they can do. I'm really curious to see how they handle it. Because personally, I've been begging to see more Josh, uh, Josh Harris, nope, Jordan Harris, in, in situations that are not just strict five on five. Not to say he's going to get power play time now because it doesn't seem like he will. But let's see him on the penalty kill. Let's see him if we get four-on-four four situations. I know that Marty likes to see him in those situations. And I believe it was the Toronto game in the preseason. Um, Montreal used him first in overtime. But for Caden Gooley, it sucks to see another injury. Um, he's putting the grizzled in grizzled veteran, and he's not even 22 years old yet. Again, the severity and like precision of the injury has not yet been con confirmed, um, so we need to wait to see. But man, it's really starting to feel like last season never ended. Like, that, that wasn't, we didn't just see game three of this season, that was game 85 of last season. And even so, the Canadians are on an 82-point pace, which would be a massive improvement from last year. Not to say they're, they're going to do that, but... So it is. All right, I reached out for some mailbag questions. Let's jump into those. First one, uh, Beth at Everwe on Twitter, not calling it X. Uh, she's got a couple questions here. What if we staged a coup and took over as the NHL governing, bo governing body? I will speak about of myself personally. I know that would be a bad idea because I would make it a penalty for... You know, you know when the puck goes goes out of play, um, and all of the players on the opposing team put their hand in the air to say, "Hey, that's delay a game." Every time you do that, as a minor penalty, <laughs> I cannot stand when players do that. It drives me nuts. Is that a rational thought? No, it's not. But I'm being my authentic self. I don't like that. So it would be bad if we staged you, Beth. You would have to do most of the work. I would mostly just do dumb things like you know, make that a penalty. Um, what is keeping you as a fan um, or overshadowing all of the discouraging things the league is doing? Uh, right now, it's if I leave, I can't help facilitate change for me. Yeah, I mean, I feel that. I've, it's, it's tough, right? I mean, it's tough. It... it <laughs> It's tough for me because the same reason why I'm staying is the same reason why I think the NHL 
It is a cowardly organization. And the reason is there's no other show in town like it. Right? Like, yes, there's the upcoming Women's League, which I'm going to be very excited to watch. But there's no, there's no NHL rival. Like, the, the Women's League is going to be its own separate entity that will not be compared to the NHL, in my estimation. And I will enjoy it separately of the NHL, because that just seems the most reasonable way for me to do that. But the NHL knows it's the only show in town, so they don't think like they have to do things to keep people, to keep people, full stop. And when they, when they do make changes to try to, you know, uh, to try to work with certain groups and the way that they think and, and, the way, and the things they believe in, it's never like, it's never like a progressive reason. It's usually like, you know, no more pride tape for the six people in this league who, th- who, thought, who didn't like it. So it's frustrating. I feel that. I don't know that I have a good answer for this, as the last 30 seconds of rambling have probably told you. Um, I'm going to keep doing this show. I'm going to keep, you know, trying to speak that truth to that power as long as I can. Um, and that's all we can do, right? Is just be a thorn in the, in the side. Be a gadfly. Like, Every time they do something, make them hear about it. You know? Wear a shirt that with a rainbow that says Scare Gary on it. Let's do that. That sounds fun. We should do that. Uh, last question from Beth. Are you still making bread at all? I am not. And, I'm bum- and I, I was just thinking about it because this time of year, the weather changes and you start, I start thinking about the holidays and it, like showing up at, at you know, holiday dinner at somebody's house with a, a fresh loaf of bread always seems like a really cool idea so i might pick that back up again the thing with making like bread especially i was making sourdough bread for a while the, the starter is just so finicky that's why i can't have kids like if you just I, I what i fed you what like why are you upset it's always gross the sourdough starter is impossible to keep going the right way i'm not a chemist i don't know what i'm doing but maybe i'll, I'll get back into it i don't know Thanks for sending those in. Uh, a couple questions from the president of Ghoulie Nation, who I know is in mourning over the, the injury to number 21. First question from Kay is Galley done? I appreciate the, the succinctness of this question because, man, it sure feels like it. Like we are at the point with Gallagher, at least to me, where it feels like the end of Placanets in Montreal. The only problem is is that Placanitz was signing like one year, one million dollar deals towards the end. And Gallagher is signed for, I don't know, I think the next three or four seasons at like six and change. It's not a good situation to be in. I I, I think he plays the next couple seasons in Montreal and then they probably send him the way of Carey Price and they just LTIR him. They're probably waiting for Carey Price's contract to end before doing that to Brennan Gallagher. Um, so it, it's, man, it, watching him, like, there's no, there's no other way I can feel about it. Like, it, it, it looks like he's skating in quicksand. And not only skating in quicksand, but the, the, all of it is slow. His hands are slow. The game looks like it's just passed him by. It's a shame. Um, it's another mark of, you know, the, the past regime just absolutely just riding these guys through injury and n- not, not rewarding them for it, right? Like, those seasons where Gallagher was getting hurt and still playing, the big trade deadline acquisitions were like, were like Steve Ott. You know, like, it seems bonkers to me that, like, this team never, that team, it's no longer this team, that team with Byron and Price and Weber towards the end, Pacioretty and Subban and and Gallagher, like, those guys never got a real true run, and they gave everything they could to this team. It it sucks. I really hate seeing it, but I just, I don't know that, is Galley done? Yeah, I think so. 
I think the, the, the thought of him being more than like a 15, 20 point player is, is kind of gone. Um, you also asked, uh, also what's up with Nick Suzuki? Is he a three C after all? I'm kidding. But also as a Nick Suzuki defender, all in, in all caps, which I appreciate. Um, I know I'm biased about this topic. You're an adult. I trust your, so I trust your opinion on this. What's up with Nick Suzuki? Is anything up with him at all? Should we worry? It's very kind of you to think I'm an adult. Um, I don't think that there's anything up with Nick Suzuki. I think they, I think this team game planned around having another center behind Suzuki who would be able to drive play and force the, the opponent to focus more on that line. And with Doc gone, that has kind of evaporated. Which I don't, and I, I hate to, to, to say this to the people who are, you know, calling Nick Suzuki washed. None of that is Nick Suzuki's fault. <laughs> you know, Nick Suzuki's still the same player. Uh, he is on an island right now. There's just no one in this roster down the middle who can compare with him. I do think that it would be best for. Suzuki and Caulfield to play apart from each other at five on five. The power play, leave them out there on the power play together. That's totally fine. You're going to spend most of the period in the offensive zone anyway. You might as well just leave your most talented players out there. But at five on five, I just don't, I don't know that that's a reality at this point. With Doc in the lineup, it's a different story, right? Like, they can they can much easily easier find places for Suzuki and Caulfield to have offensive opportunities. It's a real challenge now to find that opportunity because they're going to be going up against the other team's best players. And I know that sounds like a constant excuse, but like these are still young guys, right? And they're not they're not the upper echelon in this league, right? They're not Hart Trophy nominees. They're still really, really good players, but a lot of the really, really good players in this league are insulated on teams that are really, really good. You know, the drop-off from the Canadians' first line to the second line to the third line is, is way too big. So I'm not worried about Nick Suzuki from a is this player good anymore standpoint. I am worried a little bit for his offensive game because I just don't know where where he's going to where he's going to do that. And that's up to Marty. That's up to Marty and the rest of the coaching staff to find a situation that you know what? Maybe we let the the oppo- the opposing forwards get more chances. Maybe we give that up if we can free up our guys to go do that that same thing. Because like I said about the Wild game, Kaprizov did not have a good night at 5-on-5, five five, and he's one of the best players. He's the best player on that team, one of the best players in that conference. He's, Kirill Kaprizov is the real deal. And he just completely shut him down at 5-on-5. Five five. Maybe, like, man, it would make a whole lot more sense if they kept Phil Deneau, but that ship has sailed. So no, I'm not worried. I don't think anything's up. I think the, the, the circumstances that this team was built around have changed significantly from game two to game three. All right, we'll move on here. Um, at Adam Firebear, uh, why do the Wild reign supreme over the Canadians? They're like one in 15 against the Wild, I believe. This, this sort of thing's really interesting to me because I think I think this is more of a symptom of the of the NHL schedule than it is of any given team. Cuz remember like the Canadians were like that against San Jose too. But they just haven't won in San Jose and it's because like they play there once a year. And in a sport like hockey that is on the scale of luck to skill, it's much further to the luck end than it is the skill end. On any given night, one team can just can just have a really good night, and that's the end of it. The Wild have just always been that. I don't know why. 
but I don't I don't know that there's anything more to it. Maybe they match up particularly well, but that's we're talking one in fifteen. We're talking about seven years, right? Like th- these teams are massively different than they were seven years ago. So I think it's more of just a relic that like they don't play each other that often. They don't know each other that often. Um, but yeah, it is. It's certainly weird. You'd think that maybe we would get some of those. I think we use up all of those on Vegas. We always seem to have Vegas's number now, a regular season or otherwise. Um, last question from Jared Willett. Um, do you think the Canadians fan base is prepared for this season? I was looking forward to the development of players, but realized the team was going to struggle this year. Reactions to Doc's injury make me feel like the fan base believed Habs are a fringy playoff team. Yeah, I feel that. Um, and actually, I think we've got a couple more questions. But yeah, I definitely feel that. Um, the way that folks have reacted has been like, oh, well, the season's over. Because like, I mean, I, I joked about that as well, right? Like, I think I, think I tweeted um, midway through the wild game that the Montreal Canadiens have been officially eliminated from playoff contention. Because, like, I don't know, but this team was never supposed to be that in my estimation. It was wild. I think I think it was Marc Dumont on, on Twitter earlier on in the offseason sent out a poll that was, you know, basically asking fans what they thought, the, where they thought the Canadians would finish. And a lot of them, a lot of fans had the Canadian, not, not, not a majority, but a good portion of this fan base had them as, like, a bubble playoff team. And I think that's just uh, the... A symptom of being a fan. Um, but I just I I don't know. This season was always going to be tough. It was supposed to be better. Um, just be just from a hey they they'll probably be healthier. But man, we're already adding eighty two to the man games lost to injury. Or not eighty two, eighty 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 even. In Kirby Doc, don't know how long Caden Gooley is going to be out. And, you know, you look further, Emil Heinemann in Laval is out indefinitely. David Reinbacher's out like three weeks, I believe, with a knee injury. So it's just like, I don't know that fans are ever going to be okay with a season where they're as bad as they are going to be again this year, especially when you stack three of those seasons on top of one another. But the, we have to keep the end goal in mind here, right? Like the, the concept of this show isn't to just make a podcast every day or every week for the rest of time. So when it like it's to do it until they win a cup. To have that that kind of catalog of what this team does in order to turn itself from a last place finish to the best team in the league. So I don't really like I didn't really I don't care what the results are this season from a point total perspective. What I care more about is, are these players taking significant steps forward? Can Slavkovsky take that leap? How did, you know, how does Cole Caulfield look in, in hopefully a first full NHL season? He hasn't played a, for a full season yet, I don't think. So, I mean, I don't know that I can, I think the people who believed that the Canadians were going to be a top not a top team, but like a bubble playoff team. I don't really know that there's much I can do to convince people of that. Nor should I. Like, what does it matter if they think that? Like, I don't, it doesn't bother me at all. But I appreciate the question. It was, that's an interesting, an interesting thought. Last two here from Josh Python. Uh, The first one, can you reassure me the Habs aren't going to try to sign Nylander? There's no way he'd be as productive as a team's best forward. And that's an interesting thought. I like the idea of signing William Nylander. Um, it's going to be very expensive because, you know, he's going to be hitting the open market. But the acquisition cost is low because you're not paying assets. You're just paying cap space. And then you can use those assets and leverage them to get another asset later on. Um, but I do, I do see that as a, as a, a potential uh, limiting factor for a Nylander is that he's playing in a stacked lineup in Toronto. Can he come into Montreal and play on a, on a less talented line and put up similar numbers? It, it's, 
you're you're I think you're right in assuming that there'd be a dip in some of his production. Um with that being said, William Nylander, as you've 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 insinuated in this tweet, he would join the Canadians as their best forward. Right? Like he's he's he he's he is a very, very good hockey player. I think a lot of the negative vibes around him come from just weird guys in Toronto who like being weird guys in Toronto. But yeah, I just I I I don't love building a team through free agency like that. So that's why I'm kind of hesitant on William Nylander as a as a concept, but make no mistake, he would be the best player, the best forward on this team, perhaps the team's best player honestly. Um and the last one here from Josh uh, what could the Habs offer the Canucks this offseason for Pedersen, assuming the Canucks want to remain competitive? That's tough, um, because I think what the Canadians have in spades is not what the, the, the Canucks would want in this scenario. Um, the Canucks need, need prospect depth, I think. Like, could you float them a defensive prospect that they would, that they would take? Not in a one-for-one, obviously. But, like, centering a package around Logan Mayu. And I know people are going to say, oh, you just don't want him on the team. No, but I think, a lot of, I think a lot of people in hockey think he's incredibly talented and would be a, a player that they would want to have on their roster. Um, you know, maybe they'd probably ask for Reinbacher, but the Canes probably say no. But I think the things that the Canadians would want to offer are more along the Mayu lines. Mayu, maybe Joshua becomes a player there as much as I'd like to see him in Montreal. Um, you know, draft picks. The Canadians are going to have way too many draft picks and too many, I mean too many, in the sense that there's no way they can pick as many players as they have draft picks. You know, they'll kind of... There's there's too many players to keep within any one organization at one time without selling off everything that's in, that's currently around. I think that Vancouver might want a guy like Josh Anderson in a package like that. Obviously, that doesn't. None of these pieces on their own sort of move the needle for for Vancouver in any meaningful way. But I think I, I think we're on the right track in thinking that the Canadians need a guy like Patterson. I think that aspect of this is very true. That that Montreal adding a player like Elias Patterson would would help them take that next step and become a contender. Especially if you could do it without moving a Suzuki, a Caulfield, a Gooley, a Reinbacher. Like if you could move ancillary parts on this roster in order to bring in a guy like Pedersen you'd be like can they'd build a statue for Kent Hughes tomorrow like you know what I mean like the that's the kind of player that this market has been starved for um I don't know that it ends up happening with a lot of these you know RFA situations I feel like it's 50 50 that he just stays in in Vancouver they have a good year and he stays But maybe they have a bad year and it's time for him to move on. But at that point, like, does Montreal even make sense for him? Because they'll probably be in a very similar situation that Vancouver finds themselves in. So that's a great question. It's something to watch over the course of the season. I love Elias Patterson. I think he'd be, like I said, he'd be the best. He'd, be, he'd join the Canadians as the best player on the team. Um, and if you could do that without subtracting other really good players on this team. You'd be you'd be cooking something really good in Montreal. That'd be a lot of fun to see. All right, that is enough. I've talked for too long. Um, Montreal has a busy week ahead starting on Saturday. They've got five games in eight days. Um, but but at the, the, the rate that injuries are coming in by the time I get behind the mic again, we might be in Owen Beck emergency call-up territory um, once again. Maybe I shouldn't speak that evil into the world. I'm going to go before I say anything else dumb. Uh, thanks for listening. Here's your long social media plug. You can find me on Twitter, not calling it X, at Maybe It's Ian, and on Blue Sky at Maybe It's Ian.BSky.Social. Um, the build is also on Blue Sky at TheBuild.BSky.Social. So go follow if you're on there. 
The Build is also on TikTok, the build M- at The Build MTL, where I'll post clips from episodes. Um, the same can be said for YouTube, where uh, we are uploading full episodes um, as well as shorts, at least for the time being. They are not performing particularly well because I don't understand how YouTube works. Anyway, uh, take care. We'll talk soon. See you.